Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And for this episode, I'm joined by Cisco DeVries. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Ohm Connect, which has been a highly successful, innovative demand response program in California that's now spreading across the country. Before that, Cisco was very involved with PACE financing. We'll talk about that and his time at Renew Financial. Just delighted to have Cisco on the show today. Cisco, greetings. Welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. How are you today? I'm excellent, Ted. It is great to see you again. Good to see you. It's It's been a while. It's been a whole pandemic ago. What, right. I figure it's, it's kind of we've lost track of time. I'm not it's like a furlong of time. I have no idea exactly how long, but it's been a while. We've all been through a really, really unusual experience. I'm, I'm glad that we're largely out of it. What what's uh, what's your focus today before we get into uh, the, t- the the conversation? What are, what are you focusing on? You know, I've got two things I'm focusing on today. The first is I, I ran a half marathon yesterday. And uh, I wasn't really trained up for it. And I'm, you know, so walking today is actually one of my big focus. That, that, that is, a, I'm just being able to get up and get down uh, is fine. From a work perspective, which is probably more what you had in mind, you know, we've been spending a lot of time, I've been spending a lot of time, um, as we'll talk about Ohm Connect, helping uh, figure out how we help people reduce their energy bills, energy management services. Like, so going from, where we've been focused, where I've been focused about occasional injury reductions for the grid to how do we get people's bills lower? How do we consistently help them use less or use less energy at the right time? So energy management um, more holistically has is, is been uh, the thing I'm focused on for this week. And uh, it's a kind of an exciting task. That's a great, that's a great topic. Um, you know, when I ran a demand response program years ago for PG&E, uh, in downtown San Francisco, obviously we wanted the greatest. We wanted to be able to have the greatest reduction from their from their usage down to whatever the firm service level was. And so, if yeah, people had already reduced through energy efficiency, uh, in a way, you're working at, at working against yourself, right? Well, you know, a fun thing to get into because you're absolutely right. And what we found is that our, our so Ohm Connect, which I'm sure we'll get a little more into, we we help people reduce their energy use at peak times, and we pay them for those reductions. Demand response. What we've found is our customers are reducing their energy use by uh, five to ten percent on average overall. And that's actually quite negative for our demand response business right. because that just cuts into the amount that can reduce at peak. But it turns out to be the thing that they increasingly our customers say they most appreciate about us is that we're we're giving them control over their energy. So a lot of what we're trying to do right now is, is to figure out how uh, to embrace that and how to help people do it, but also, yeah, how to get credit for it and figure right. out how to get paid for it, right? Because it, you're you're absolutely right; it does not actually uh, help us pay the bills by itself. Right? How do you how do you how do you monetize that? How do how do the utilities? How can they be confident that you're actually cre- you've actually created a savings stream? Uh, That's exactly right. E- easier to measure it, so probably on the in the instantaneous, as opposed to sort of on a, over the course of a year, right? Well, we argue about the instantaneous enough as it is. So, yes, yeah, so when you expand it out to a year, it gets even worse. I can imagine. Uh, but, uh, you know, you also listen to the the real crisis people are having about the increase in their energy costs, uh, the, the sort of lack of control they feel they have over those. And 
So even though we haven't figured out how to make any money on it, um, we hear loud and clear that that's what's needed. And we're trying to figure out how to provide a solution and do so in a way that that doesn't yeah, undermine our business model. Right. Maybe creates a new source, a new source of revenues to complement your 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 what's been your core business model. That's right. Yeah. So let's go way back. Let's go way back in your career. Born and raised. Are you California born and raised? I am. I am a native Californian. Um, I was actually raised in the country. I grew up just outside of Yosemite National Park uh, up in the Sierra Nevadas, around 4,000 feet. And uh, my family still has our home up there. My father and his wife still live there. Uh, and so I have watched, to some degree, the Sierra and our forests uh, die. And that is a, a hard lesson to learn and I think impacts this. You know, you most people live in the cities and you might see it's a drought or other things. But when you watch all of the pine trees die in a forest that has existed long before I was born, but that I grew up in, and then you watch it burn, yeah. uh, it has a, a pretty big impact. And so I feel like I love it up there. Uh, it is still absolutely gorgeous. I go up there whenever I can, but it has changed a lot. And that change just over my lifetime, I actually feel like in some ways empowers or um, powers my uh, efforts around climate change. It, it's it's hard to ignore. Right. It's really interesting to see you asked me why I enjoy these conversations. I mean, to hear what motivates people that, that these are in your in your roots no pun intended but right. your roots are are in that seeing that ecosystem go through a big change you went to uc san diego as an undergraduate is that right i did i went down uh, i went as far away from my parents as possible while still paying in-state tuition for university and that was san diego so <laughs> that's so funny I, I was living in new england and i went as far away as possible and so I went all the way from New England all the way down to San. I went to UC San Diego also. Oh, I, you know, I don't know that we talked about this before. This is great. All right. Yeah, and then, but then you went up to Berkeley. I uh, did my graduate program up in Berkeley a few years later. Yeah. And so by that time, were you really focused? On, I mean, that was public policy. Were you focusing in on energy environmental issues at that time? Well, so in between those, I spent a few years in Washington, D.C., and I, I worked, uh, eventually uh, got appointed to the Clinton administration and uh, spent a couple different jobs there. But the, the longest one I held was actually an aide to the United States Secretary of Energy. I didn't know anything about energy. Uh, and the very first project or one of the very first projects I ended up on was about the rollout and announcements related to refrigerator standards. And I went to Washington thinking I would work on exciting issues of world peace or or maybe, you know, going to space or I have no idea what. And I ended up working on a refrigerator standard. And I thought that perhaps I had made a poor choice in my life. But I actually think that was like my first true energy love. I think that that moment, because what you learn about what I learned about in that moment on, on refrigerators uh, was that small changes that people don't even notice add up to such huge, big, important change. The refrigerator is one of the most incredible success stories of energy in history. It is, the refrigerator has become, it uses like 90% less energy. They're 75% bigger. They cost a lot less. And a lot of that was work by government agencies and folks in California and others to sort of increase these standards and the industry to respond to those. 
And so nobody knows about this story because it worked. And so that's the great thing is, you know, you you sort of learn about the stuff that's under the hood that people aren't paying attention to. And how do you get that right? And then a lot of success comes, even if no one really notices. They notice when things go wrong. Yeah. Uh, but this is one of those successes. And I don't know that I really understood how big that impact was on me of that first project until as I look back now and see that that stuck with me in a in a way that um, seems pretty important. And so when I, I went to public policy, I was already very interested in environmental and other issues like this. And I really focused in on these issues. I mean, on some other things as well. Uh, and so as I came rolling out of my graduate program, it was uh, definitely a focus to stay on environmental and energy related issues. And then did you go directly to the city of Berkeley at that point? I spent a few years uh, working on political campaigns. Uh, I, uh, I worked on a bunch of environmental measures and other measures and candidates. Uh, but again, I think the environmental piece was there. And some of those I look back on and maybe they weren't... Um, you know, in retrospect, they weren't the winning choices. I worked on a green diesel program. Uh, I don't know that in retrospect, that's one I uh, would tout on the resume. But, you know, each one of these, you learn how does the industry work? How does automotive work? How do these buses work? How do these things and how do you communicate this to people in a way that they are comfortable with? How do you deal with regulators? And so I spent a few years doing that. Uh, and from there, uh, ended up at the city of Berkeley. And you've been touted, uh, you've been labeled as the godfather of PACE financing. I, I met you, I was working for the city of Palm Desert. We were rolling out PACE program and you were up in Berkeley. I guess you were, weren't you originally using the Mellow Roost tax provision for, uh, but, but basically you, you became uh, the leader or one of the great leaders of this whole new financing method. And what... What prompted what prompted your thinking about that? What what got you going in Berkeley? To, that that basically, I think the utility programs were not providing sufficient financing for folks, and you thought maybe you could maybe you could put that on the tax roll instead. Is that was that the concept? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is back in uh, you know the mid two what two thousand five six seven in there, Ted that and and you and I were both slogging away in our uh, working with cities trying to figure out how to solve some problems. The <clears throat> the issue that one of my favorite questions, uh, maybe my favorite question that I've I've come to like embrace as like my career choice is what problem are you trying to solve? Because it really illuminates when you're having a conversation with somebody what the challenge is. And and so I can tell you like what happened back with Berkeley was I got fixated on a problem. And the problem was at the time, we wanted people to do energy efficiency upgrades to their homes and we wanted them to get solar, but it took a lot of money up front and there really weren't options to pay for it. This was before solar uh, leases and PPAs were available for residential customers. There was no such thing as a solar specific loan. People could basically either write a check out of a checking account or use maybe a home equity line of credit. Those are your options. And so most people didn't have any access at all to financing for these projects that hopefully would save them a lot of money over time, but cost a lot up front. And so I was just working on how we would kind of open that door, how we would try and fix that. And so, yeah, I was looking at all kinds of, of ideas that didn't go anywhere. I was trying to figure out how to do utility, um, how to do things with utility bills. And, you know, pg and &E and others said, you know, you can go just uh, pound sand over there in the corner if you'd like. We're, we're not going to do that. Um, and I looked at a variety of other things, our, our garbage bill and other places that the city had, because I was looking at what tools 
does a local government, does the city, in this case of Berkeley, have that we could use to stretch out this payment, you know, to do something? And it was really by accident uh, that I um, got pulled into a neighborhood dispute over a Melarus uh, financing district. And I don't remember much about the dispute, but I do remember thinking, wait a minute, we are allowing people to voluntarily choose to make an improvement that affects their home and repay it as a line item on the property tax bill. That feels like something we could work with. And, and that was the beginning. And as sort of, I say with Pace, it was, um, you know, I didn't invent Mellow Roos. I didn't invent a lot of things. I just was like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I didn't invent peanut butter or jelly. I just kind of put the two together. I'm like, you know, this could be a yummy sandwich. And, and then, uh, uh, out of that pace uh, really started to get rolling and and uh, still still is going today. But it was very much focused on how to solve a very specific problem that was bedeviling me as we were trying to roll out environmental um, uh, opportunities in, in the city. Right. And your and your the, the brilliance, I, I think it's fair to say, is that you took Mellow Roos, which was a way for a community, as I understand it, to to tax themselves. Uh, to build, say, a public park or a fire station or some something more sort of traditionally seen as a municipal, uh, you know, sidewalks or what something like that, or perhaps sewer lines or, or infrastructure. But you took that and said, "Wait a second! If you create a district and everybody agrees to it, then they could do things individually on their own homes, right?" You know, that's exactly right. So the recalling back the the first uh, the start of this the neighborhood financing district that spurred all this for me, they were actually doing an underground utility district. So they were taking the electrical equipment, the poles and wires, and they were putting them underground. And that of course has fire safety and earthquake safety benefits. Great. But it's also, you know, really nice, right? So these homes would have better views and you wouldn't have poles and wires in your, in your front yard. Um, And, and the city's perspective was, look, that's a lovely thing to do. And there's a public purpose for it with the fire safety. So we'll help you do it with this financing. But you pay for everything. The city's not going to foot a pen, not, not, not going to pay a penny of the cost of this improvement. I was like, well, if we're going to put all the poles and wires for the electricity underground, why not put them on the roof <laughs> with a solar system? And if uh, and even already with that initial law, you know, the amount that an individual property paid varied. It varied based on the amount of uh, benefit accrued to that home. So we were already in a place where people were voluntarily taking a tax. They were voluntarily doing a project and the amount they were paying was related to their benefit. And so it it really wasn't a huge leap from there uh, right. to say, you know, let's use that to finance clean energy and energy efficiency. Um, it, it it opened some new challenges, and we we've, we've obviously still deal with those. But it was um, I was surprised nobody was doing it already. Right, and they had this. You already had those California Assessment Acts. I can't remember nineteen eleven or nineteen thirteen. Been at it for a while. Yeah, sort of essentially set up to do that kind of a thing. Well, what what we what we did in Palm Desert, obviously, and what you did in Berkeley, started off being a municipal program. In Palm Desert, we raised all the, our own cash to do it, and we end, end up using the using the the pace mechanisms, working with the county tax roll. But along the way, uh, it became clear that there were some opportunities for third parties to jump in here and to manage these programs and to bring the capital uh, for these programs. And that's that's essentially what Renew Financial did, which you went on to be, lead Renew Financial. And 
if you could um if you could gloat about it or brag about it uh what what would you say was your uh the, the great accomplishment there i think you were there for almost 10 years no it was 10 look uh we uh i i remember having a conversation with the mayor in berkeley and talking about this idea which became pace and he said the problem is we have no money so you got to find the money that's going to be used to finance these things and i i was like well where where are we going to get the money and ultimately after a year or so helping set up the first program and doing various things there was still a challenge finding the money i thought well this is an opportunity there's there's a way that a company could do this and so after i'd left the city and had played around with various ideas. I ended up helping co-found Renew Financial and then ran it for 10 years. Um, I'm really proud of a bunch of stuff we helped kind of invent in that world. Um, but the biggest thing that I'm proud of is that we financed uh, projects in 92,000 homes. We got solar and energy efficiency uh, installed in 92,000 homes in about 15 different states. And we financed $1.5 billion of projects. And we didn't just end up using Pace, although that was probably about a billion of it. And, and the company's still going strong. They're still out there. Um, I, But we, we, we did utility on-bill financing, and we did the world's first unsecured energy efficiency project loan, asset-backed securitization. It was also one of the smallest securitizations ever, but we did it. And that paved the way for all these other solar loans and things to come for uh, after it. So we really were at the forefront of figuring out how to use financial mechanisms to democratize access to clean energy. And I'm real proud of that. And most of the, you know, 99% of those projects were great projects that got really great done. And, you know, and some of the projects weren't great, but we, uh, I think, succeeded in our mission of really opening the door to uh, the widespread adoption of both solar and uh, more efficient up, uh, improvements. That's great. And, and you are also very much a spokesperson for PACE financing, uh, going to Washington and testifying. I know you've done, you've had a lot of different roles where you've been the advocate that has not only helped your own company or Renew Financial, but helped the, helped the entire market. So thanks for all your work with that. Let's, let's fast forward. Uh, and get into your current company, which, which uh, is Ohm Connect. You're the CEO. I, I know there was three gentlemen that had this idea. Um, maybe you could sort of talk about their idea, and then um, and we'll take it from there. Absolutely. So Ohm Connect is nine years old now, uh, and I've been the CEO for three, three and a half years. The reason I joined, the reason I got to know these guys um, was <laughs> I became focused in the last couple of years, I was doing financing at Renew Financial before I decided it was time to, to take on some new challenges. I was like, you know, what matters now, increasingly what matters, the problem we have is not whether your home is efficient, it's when your home is efficient. <laughs> and that's a fundamentally different problem. But if we're going to transition to zero carbon and renewable power, we need to be able to flex demand for electricity in the same way that we used to be able to dial up and dial down fossil fuel power plants, because power plants no longer have those same controls. So we need to, in, instead of the supply being varied, we need the, uh, the demand for electricity to move around to reflect the availability and the price of 
uh, electrical supply. And that it, not only do we need to do it, if we don't do it, and if we don't do it quickly, we're going to blow up the grid long before we get to zero carbon. So I am by no means the first person who had this notion. Um, I am uh, at this point, the world has seen enough of it that it's no longer a surprise when I say things like this. But a few years ago, I was thinking, who's doing this? Somebody's got to have tried to figure this out because it's so important. And if we get if we don't do it, we can't get to zero carbon. This is just a threshold issue. And I looked all over the world and it turns out the company that was doing the thing that I thought needed to be done. And the only one I'd found who'd really cracked the nut was 15 minutes from my house. <laughs> and I didn't really know him. Uh, it was OhmConnect. And it turns out that years prior, these incredibly smart folks had actually had this same idea way before me. <laughs> and it turns out that the people who'd done it had some really important skills. One of them had been an energy trader when the energy markets first opened up to financial participants. So he knew how energy markets work, like Kaiso and all these other things that now like undergird most of the US energy system, electricity system. And the second one was the chief technology officer of Zynga who created, you know, Farmville and Words with Friends. And so all of these so basically was the pioneer of social gaming, which, you know, may have been a total disaster for the universe, but was quite a thing that went went from zero to, a, a, you know, billions of users. So he had left Zynga thinking there's got to be a way to put what we've learned about how to engage people to this energy problem and connect it up with the guy who knew how who was like, how do we get, you know, I know how the energy markets work. How do we get customers to do it? And so the two of them had spent years with a great group of other people coming together, Kurt and others, to try and figure out how to solve this problem. And it is non-trivial, as we know. It is hard to get people to do things about energy, but they figured it out. And so when I came along, they'd sort of figured it out in one market in California, but nobody really believed it because everybody from all the history of all these programs and utilities had felt like they're never going to work. And so a lot of what I did when I joined raising money was, was telling the story, was helping people understand in positions of authority, regulators and utilities and others, that this really works. You can get hundreds of thousands of individual customers, residential folks to change their energy use all at once. And you can do it over and over and over again. And you can predict exactly how much energy is going to get reduced using a ton of data and analysis. And now we've proven it. But it was uh, it was something that is, is really important to the future of the grid and to our transition to renewables. And I got very lucky in that I connected with these guys, I think, right at the moment they'd cracked the nut and they needed somebody to help figure out how, what to do then. And uh, I'd had some experience with that. So that was my foray into uh, joining OhmConnect. It's a great story. And, and when you say nobody was doing it, I think... Nobody was doing it in the residential sector, right? The demand response had really been relegated to large users, right? For for many years before that. They, yes, absolutely. They, so let me say, I think there are two things that OnConnect does that are different and both are important. And you're absolutely right. The first one is it's residential. And, and residential is important because what we're seeing increasingly is residential, the, the peak moments, like in California, we, the famous duck curve, right? We peak... Not It used to be at two in the afternoon. Back when you were doing demand response, right? It was one or two in the afternoon. We'd have these peaks. And that was because everyone was at the office and everything was going and all the industrial stuff was happening. The peak now 
is actually at seven, eight o'clock at night. And that peak is 70% residential demand. So what's happening is everyone's getting home and turning on their air conditioners and TVs and everything else. And the solar comes offline at exactly the same time. So we have this evening peak. So that means residential becomes increasingly important just because that's what's on when we're hitting our peak. And that's different than it was 20 years ago. So we have 20 year head start in figuring out how to get residential and commercial folks to do energy efficient, to do demand response. And nobody had really thought that, that residential was number one, that important or two, that easy. And it became not easy, but very important. And I think that's been the transition. So we've learned a lot from where things were in, de in demand response years ago. The second thing that's important about residential too, and I think it's that it gets lost sometimes in the in the mix of all of this is that it's actually you can do it all the time. Once you engage a customer, unlike a commercial enterprise, if they know what's happening and they're getting paid, they like it when you call more events because they get paid more. So commercial tends to be like, look, if you need to call me once or twice a year or once or twice a month at most, fine. But re our residential customers have a once they get hooked on it, they're like, wait, you haven't called an event in a week and I need some money. So let's go. And so they really switch gears. So we we call events all the time. Customers will get 100 plus events a year. And so we become much more, we, we get used a lot more. Residential customers are comfortable getting uh, dispatched a lot more. So I think those combinations have meant that residentials become an important component. Yeah. It's building off of the commercial side of things. So let's run through like sort of how this works. Uh you have a your 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 trader realizes that the that the energy markets that I want to talk about in a second need capacity, and somehow you send out a signal to people like me that have signed up for your service. And do I get that via a text or email or both or or a phone call or how do I take action as this as, as one of your members? Uh, so let yeah let's talk about California. We're we're now in uh, multiple states and countries, uh, but in California where we've uh, uh, we are the the largest residential demand response program in the state, and I think we are the largest residential virtual power plant on earth. Um, we have uh, two hundred and fifteen thousand enrolled, engaged California customers, and here's what happens: we uh, ten thousand times a day we tell the state's grid operator, exactly how many megawatts we have and exactly where we have it and at what price we need to get paid to make those megawatts of demand reduced on the grid. And when our price clears in their mechanism, we are required, and we have between 15 minutes and one day notice, depending, yeah. we are required to reduce that energy use as much as we've been dispatched or face the same penalties a power plant would face for not, not producing uh, when dispatched. We then signal our customers and we do that in two ways. Number one, if we have enough time, we'll send you text messages and an email and your app will, will tell you, hey, look, here's how much energy you normally use at this time. Please use less and we will reward you and pay you for the difference between what you usually use and what you use on this in this event. But increasingly, what we also do is we connect to your devices and appliances. So we actually control in California, 300,000 appliances and devices in people's homes. These are everything from smart plugs to, of course, smart thermostats to EV chargers and hot water heaters and refrigerators and you name it, we probably control it. 
And so what when our customers have trusted us with is not only do they have the ability to turn things down, but they said, go ahead and do it for me. And you don't even have to warn me. So we will just reach in and actually change the setting on your thermostat or turn off something for 15 minutes or an hour. So we do that at scale and we can do that at a hyper local basis all over the state, or we can do it system wide in times when the grid is really in, in trouble. And so those are the two main ways we engage people. And then afterwards, we then say, great, you succeeded. Here's how much you reduced. Here's how much you've been rewarded to go forth. You can get yourself some gift cards. You can buy some stuff in the store. You can cash out on PayPal, whatever you want to do. So we've really made it both easy to participate and we've automated that process. Um, and that's taken both a lot of work, but also just a lot of developing trust with people because that's a lot to ask people to hand over to us. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. It's a brilliant model. I Congratulations on it. And what would a typical, not that everything is all about money, but what would a typical homeowner make in the course of a year if they were one of your participants? I mean, is it a matter of a few hundred dollars? I mean, is that sort of in the range? Yeah, yeah, you definitely can. So uh, first of all, I would say, unfortunately, it almost always is about the money. And so even though people love the environmental benefits, like you and I both know, like that only gets you so far. Yeah. The economic benefit is what drives people's participation for the most part. We, As we say, they do it for the money. They tell their friends about it because they're proud of the environmental benefit. So you got to have both. Um, people who participate get paid, get basically uh, in, get benefit in two ways. The first is how much we pay them. And our best users make several hundred dollars a year. Um, and uh, just in direct payments or rewards. Uh but you also, our average new customer reduces their energy use, as I mentioned, about 7%. And so when you look at that across like PG&E, well, we're actually talking about a two to $300 a year reduction in your energy costs because of that reduction in use. So you're getting both the ability to make some money from us, but actually the bigger benefit increasingly is that you're actually saving some money on your bill. And as I mentioned at the beginning, that that is more and more a focus for individuals yeah. and a focus for us in trying to help figure out what to do about that. There was a, you had a, a, a case study that was developed, I think it was August 14th of 2020, and maybe there's been other ones, but uh, where Ohm Connect was, we really proved the value in shoring up the grid. Is that right? Yeah, so our first big test uh, was August and then September of 2020, where we, I think we showed up with a lot of megawatts, actually uh, hundreds and hundreds of megawatts to re and reduce demand right at a time when the when the grid was starting to fail. We had our first blackouts in a long time in August of 2020. And I think actually our success during that period of time, I think got a lot of attention from regulators and leaders. They're like, wait a minute, this could work. So then flash forward to September of last year. And we have California faced blackouts again. We, we had the highest demand ever recorded in our grid. Uh, we were gigawatts short of supply. And we engaged our users over a several day period as much as we've ever done before. Um, we dispatched them in all kinds of different ways. We gave out gift cards and whatever else. We were able to reduce 1.6 gigawatt hours of uh, energy use across that several day period. And we're one of the key reasons we didn't have blackouts 
was because our customers stepped up so broadly and so well. We paid our customers $2.7 million just during that small period of time because that's how expensive and valuable the uh, megawatts were on the market. So we were able to translate not only a huge economic benefit to our customers, but we were also able to deliver this great benefit to the grid. And that, I think, proved that what happened in August 2020, where we sort of showed up for the first time and you know, was not a fluke that we can do that. And that in fact, our customers show up the most when the grid is the, when the grid is at its worst. And that's a really powerful thing to have in your back pocket when you're managing the grid. Final couple questions. Um, you've got, you've got the major utilities here in California, San Diego Gas and Electric, Southern California, Edison, PG&E on board with Ohm Connect. I believe you're working with Consolidated Edison in New York City. Uh, where else are you? You mentioned you're even in a couple other countries now. Yeah, so we launched in Texas. Uh, we are available anywhere uh, that the competitive market exists in Texas. So all of ERCOT. Um, and we've been growing a lot there. And that has been uh, great. I think it's great, too, because one of the things I love about all this is it's not political. I, you don't have to have an argument about policy or climate change. You just say, like, do you want to get paid? for managing your energy a little bit and people it doesn't matter whether you're blue green or purple uh you like it um the second is we launched a couple years ago in australia and our partners origin energy there and we have a, a hundred thousand customers and it's going great uh it really is about a powerful tool and they're seeing exactly the same benefits there which is you have dispatchable megawatts but you also have people engaging around the energy 81 percent of our customers in Australia say that they've changed how they use their energy all the time because of the program. And that's just teaching them a little bit about what it, what's happening in energy. So those are really exciting uh, uh, places. We'll be launching uh, Canada later this year. Well, congratulations, Cisco. Congratulations to you and your colleagues. Um, how are you maintaining a, a healthy balance in life? Uh, you look, you're looking good. I know you've got a son who is into baseball. I think it's baseball. Got two of those. Uh, two of those. <laughs> you know, um, obviously the kids keep you grounded. It's been uh, wonderful to have that experience as they've been growing up and getting older and doing all that. I don't have a great answer to this question. I was thinking about this the other day. I run and I don't really like running that much, but I like having run a lot. I like when I'm done running <laughs> and you can run anywhere, anytime. And I just need a pair of shoes. So I've started running half marathons. I run a couple, three a year, and it just makes it, I sign up for a half marathon, and then I know a few months from now, I have to be ready to run 13 miles or I will embarrass myself in public. And so I keep myself fit, be out of pure public shame, fear of public shaming. <laughs> um, and I feel like that is, uh, that is my way of keeping myself emotionally and physically uh, healthy. Um, and I feel much better having gone for a run. Usually, like today, the day after a half marathon, I don't feel great. <laughs> I feel pretty sore, but I feel like I accomplished something. And that is uh, really key. It's also a time where I think a lot, right? When you're running, your your brain sort of slows down and chews on things differently. Oh, great. Well, whatever it takes to get you out there. But yeah, I've always found, I think you're, you're probably just like me. I've always found that you always feel better after you exercise. You always feel like, you know, it's tough to get yourself out the door sometimes, but always feel better. Well, listen, Cisco, thanks so much for uh, all your all you've done with Pace Financing and now with uh, Demand Response and Ohm Connect. And uh, it's really been great to catch up with you. Have a great day. 
Thank you, Ted. It's been great. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.